Wonderful truth. That's where we'll end. Think about the fact that history has a purpose. It's going to a, in a direction. And that's where we'll end when Jesus Christ will be fully loved, glorified, and honored. Well, let's commit our time to the Lord tonight in prayer. Father, we come before you, and again, we give you thanks for that revelation from your word of your plan and the potential for our lives because of it. And we're coming again to ask you to show us yourself. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us your way. We come and ask that you would have, by your Spirit, free reign tonight here in our midst to speak honestly to hearts, that you will work in us an honest response, that we might know what it is to lay hold of the grace of God. So we're coming and trusting you for your work tonight, and we look to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we're going back through the book of Isaiah, it's truly a a collective study. What we're going to be talking about tonight is not separated from what we talked about last week, because in a sense, it's a long sermon, one long message that just keeps on going and it keeps running into the next section. And so I want to remind you of of what we saw in the first two sections, two things that we have seen thus far. First of all, we saw in the introduction, the guy comes to this great conclusion. There's a lot we saw there, but here's the great conclusion. All flesh is grass. Everything that has to do with humankind on this earth is fading away. It's dying. But the best thing you can have on this earth is giving up. So it's it's all flesh is grass, all of its glory. He says it's like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But then he says this, But the word of our God stands forever. Right, so this is a big point to the book of Isaiah, that the Word of God, you can count on it. And that leads us to what we got in the second session. And this is right, again, this is going to move right into our section here, a well-known passage. Because of who God is and because of the confidence you can have in His Word, there are two kinds of people. There's those that reject that, and there's those that, he says, wait on the Lord. Those that wait on the Lord, what happens? they get a new kind of strength, a new strength. And they mount up with wings like eagles and they run and they don't get weary and they walk and they don't faint. So what are they going to do? This is actually the call of the entire rest of the book. The application of everything we will study in the rest of the book of Isaiah is this. Those that wait on the Lord get a new kind of strength. It's all a call to commit yourself to the Lord, to come to Him. And we saw that that waiting on the Lord involved three concepts. It kind of weaves three of them together. The first concept is the concept of hope. They've got confidence that what God has promised for the future will come to pass. And therefore, they can build their lives around those things which they haven't seen yet, but they will see because He promised it. It is therefore a life of patience. Right, that, that waiting on the Lord is a life of patience, patient living, putting up with the things that we're waiting for or things that happen while we are waiting God's completion. Then finally, it's a, a life of faith, a life in which a person trusts God in the immediate present for what he needs to have to keep going. He said, that, and the great point of all that is that person will have a new kind of strength which will enable them to walk, to enable them to walk. And that's... A little bit strange to us, but it's the high point for Isaiah. 
Not the mounting up with wings like eagles. He starts with that. But it's a climb, which we would think of as a descent. But what he sees as the strongest response, the strongest evidence of a man who is controlled by God is that he keeps on going forward no matter what hits him. All right? He walks. He doesn't faint. That's where we were. Remember, that's the the call then for everything that is going to be said is a call to respond that way. Now, in chapter 41, we're going to try to get this entire chapter in. Long way. In the chapter, Isaiah paints a picture for us. He puts out an imaginary picture. There's a lot of imagination you've got to have to understand the book of Isaiah. He brings up this picture of God appearing on this earth and calling all the nations together for a conference, for a debate, for a challenge. Right? Now, God can't do They wouldn't do that way, but that's the picture. He starts off by summonsing all the nations. That would include Israel, all the people that live on the earth. And come here, and I want to talk to you about what reality is. I want to talk to you about who I am, and I want to talk to you about how you've responded to that. So that's the picture here. It's not a court trial. It's not as if he's putting the the nations on trial. It's as if he is just debating with them. He is asking them to prove that their way of life is really meaningful. All right, so that's where we start, and I want to look through this, and we're going to have to fly through it. But again, it's in pretty big chunks that are pretty easy to go. So first of all, the challenge to the nations. There's coastlands, and remember we said last week, the coastlands in the book of Isaiah always describe the nations as a whole. That's just what, what's referred to. It says all the coastlands. Talking about all the nations that are everywhere because they saw the nations as being at the edges of water. Most, most nations were at that time. So that's what it is. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And then this word comes up, and let the peoples gain new strength. Now that's a challenge. Remember, it comes right off of this. Those that wait on the Lord gain a new strength. Now he says, you aren't waiting on the Lord in a sense, so I want you to come here, and now you go call on your, get your strength. Get whatever it is that you have that answers your your need in life, and come, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what that's about. Now, when he gets them there, he says in verse 2, who has aroused one from the east? Now, again, this takes a little bit of history, okay? So here, quick, I'll try to get through the history fast. Everybody here. After God took the people into a place called Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, in captivity. That's going to happen a hundred years after Isaiah says this, but they will be taken there. They're in a part of the world, Babylon. Babylon was a very strong government, but it was a very relatively small, I won't say very small, but it was a relatively small empire. It did not cover a lot of territory. It was a short-lived empire. It only lasted for 70 years. It reached its peak under Nebuchadnezzar, and it went downhill after that. When that took place, other nations around the outside, they never conquered them all. They begin to group up, and a man named Cyrus becomes king of an area of Persia, and he begins a rapid advance all around Babylon, all all around the Chaldean Empire that's right in the middle, and he starts gobbling up one nation after another, and it happened very quickly, very quickly. Now, that's what's happening when he speaks here, all right? The way he says, who has aroused this one from the east, that's, that's the Persians, all right? They are east. They're in what's modern-day Iran, 
All right. So they're coming from that region over to Iraq and they're coming in. But they're not coming to Babylon yet. They're just eating up everything around this. And God calls these nations together and says, where did this guy come from? He's asking them to, to tell them, where, well, how did this happen? What's going on here? Now, most of the nations at that particular time, their basic philosophy was a fatalistic idea that, that there was just some kind of a stream behind life that just forced it to happen. And you couldn't really fight it. It just, it just happened back there. It was very fatalistic. But it couldn't explain anything. It just took what happened, and it's sort of the God wills type of thing. It's just what God wills. And it's not God wills in a positive sense that God's in control, but that's just the way you got to take it. It's just what happens. All right, so that's where they're thinking. Now, who has aroused one from the east whom he calls, that's who God calls, in righteousness? Now, the guy's not righteous. Cyrus is not righteous, but God is doing the right thing. That's what the word is here. It means that God is doing the right thing by raising him up. He delivers up nations before him. That is, God delivers up the nations before him. He subdues kings. He makes him like dust with his sword. As the wind-driven chaff with his bow, he pursues them, passing on in safety by the way that they had been not, he had been not traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth generations from the beginning? And then he says this, all that is happening because of who I am, which is where he gets there. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. Now, at this point, he doesn't say, I am the first and the last. He's talking about history. I was there at the beginning, and I will be in this thing right to the last person of human history has existed. Now, all he's saying to the, the people is, okay, what is happening out there is because of who I am. I am the one that caused him. I have raised this man up. And again, one of the things we saw as we start out this course is that if you're going to understand Isaiah, you have to understand that that's the biblical view, that the course of this world is determined by God. That the nations which are powerful on the face of the earth today, that the Chinese are where they are because of the purpose of God. The United States is at this point experiencing what they're experiencing at the purpose of God. He is the one that raises up kingdoms. He is the one who puts them down. That it is not random and it's not up to, to rulers. It is not up to thinkers. It's not, it's all controlled. He says, now that's the way it is. Now that is a call actually to faith here. That's a call to faith. I'm in control. You are afraid of what's going on because this was scary. As you could imagine what would happen in the world if you pick a country, I don't know, I, I hesitate to even mention a country, but we'll pick country X decides to start encroaching on other countries and they start going and they start winning and they start building up this empire what would you think you're sitting in this country you think you're safe maybe i'm safe maybe i'm not safe that's the kind of situation where are they going to stop what are they going to do next who's going to get hurt that's the problem he's talking about so what are the nations going to do all right verse five the response to this challenge all right says, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. That is, everybody's trembling. The ends of the earth tremble because of what's going on. They've drawn near and have come. That is, they've grouped up together. That's what he's picturing there. They have grouped up, each one with his neighbor, and says to his brother, be strong. All right? Positive thinking. That's the way we're going to come 
We're going to handle this with positive thinking. We're going to get together. We're going to think positively. But that's going to run out on them, so they're going to do something else. They're going to build something. And so the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer encourages him who beats with the anvil, and saying of the soldering, it's good, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. Now, he never calls that an idol, but that's what it is. Because that's the nature of, human, of, of the human response to the difficulties of life. Let's do the best we can, and we'll make a God to call on. That's what every human being does, apart from the grace of God. They do the best they can, and then they call on whatever they've created as their God. It's interesting, the picture here. He's, he's, five men are involved in building that thing, so it's a group effort here. He's, and he's going to come back to them in just a minute. And they put it there, and then he says something about it. They're going to nail it down so it doesn't fall over. All right. Well, that's kind of funny in a sense that your God has to be nailed down to fall, not fall over. But another important point there is that idol will never, ever move. It doesn't do anything which comes up later. All right. Now, he's, he's got them. He said, this is who I am and this is what I do. And then he says this to Israel. And he turns to Israel in the middle of all this. And he's going to say something to them. This is well-known section of chapter 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you who I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Again, this makes more sense if you've read through all of the Old Testament, you know where we're at here. When the people of God were called by God way back along the way, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make you a special people. The agreement was that they would be a special people if they would walk with God. That's all they had to do. You follow me, and I will bless you, and we will together glorify. God will be glorified on this earth. They did not do that. And his promise was that if they did not do what, if they didn't walk with him, he was going to curse them, and, and it would take them out of the land. That has come to pass when this becomes important. It hadn't happened when Isaiah spoke, but when this became important, the time he's talking about here, they've already gone into that captive. They're already there. And the books of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell us that when they got there, they realized they have done the wrong thing, and they they kind of went from being a very proud people to being a completely broken people. Our hope is dried up. We have no hope whatsoever. So you can imagine being in that place where you think you have blown it to the place where there is no hope for you with regards to God. You have said the wrong, done the wrong thing with regards to God, and then God comes to you and says this to you. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And he finally gets down to the end of verse 9. I have chosen you and not rejected you. And he's going to say three things to them. He's going to make three promises here about what he's going to be to them at that point. And he's going to be able to do this because of something is down in the middle there. Um, in verse 14, jumping ahead, but this has to do with all the different sections. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, that's God, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In the book of of. Uh, Jeremiah says this, I'm not going to, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do it for your sake. I'm going to do it for my own sake. But I will redeem you. 
and I'm going to get you back out of that place. So he's speaking to them. But three things he's going to do for them. Number one, he says, he's going to alleviate fear from them because while all this is taking place, which they won't understand, I'm going to be with you. Don't be afraid because I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'll uphold you with my victorious right hand. That's what he is going to do for them. All right, let's keep going there. That's the first thing, and, and that takes us down through those, those chapter, or down to um, verse 14, or verse 13, excuse me. Then in verse 14, it says, Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. And you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and make the hills like chaff. And you will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. First of all, I'm going to be with you. Second thing is this. I'm going to use you. What that? I'm going to use you. This is, this is what you have to remember. In the middle of all the turmoil of the... Chaldeans and or the you know, the Chaldeans and the Persians fighting it out in the in the distressed time that that's going to create. I'm going to walk with you right through this, so you're okay. It's going to be okay, and I'm going to deal with your enemies while you're going through all of this. And then he says this, and while it's happening, I am going to use you. Now I want to say something about that sharp threshing instrument and the imagery there. Because the Israelites always took that to be imagery of warfare, right? This is what the problem they had in the New Testament time, because they thought when God did his work to restore them, what he was going to do is instead of us getting beat up by the other nations, we're going to turn around and we're going to beat them up. And we're going to let them have it. And our, our Messiah is going to lead us forth into this. And it's interesting to note that as although he talks in very... In violent terms, okay, about thrashing and all the rest of it, he doesn't speak about dealing with people. He's going to be using, as we go through the rest of the book of Isaiah, we'll find it out. He's going to be talking about dealing with thoughts. He's going to be talking about glorifying God, about bringing down, because this is very similar. When they thresh the mountains and everything is laid low, so we have to keep the imagery together. Remember how the book started? Comfort, comfort my people. Right. Then he goes on to this and he says, I'm going to make a a highway for our God and every mountain and hill will be made low and every rough place will become smooth and then they'll see the glory of God. See, this idea of thrashing the mountains and bringing them down is not an idea of militarily taking anybody. It is an idea of getting things ready for the coming and the revelation of God on this earth. And he says, I'm going to use you for that. I am going to make your life important because of that. Right? But a second thing, okay, it's great to be able to note your use, but there is a a third part to this promise. It's probably one of the best known parts of the the, the promise. The uh, promise, but it comes in verse 17. So the afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. 
As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree and together with, uh, and I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Now remember that this is all, this is pictured as all taking place while you've got the nations assembled. All right, The nations are assembled. He tells them that he's in control of history. And then when there's the response that he has of the people going off to, to make their idol, then he says to Israel, while everybody is right there, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to be with you and make you secure. I am going to make you part of my program, and then I'm going to do something else. I'm not only going to make you a worker. I'm going to do something for you, an individual man. I think about his picture here. It's a common picture, and we kind of use it so many times we don't think about it. I'll pour water on him that's thirsty. Now, again... It's suggested so many times, but we get kind of tired of it. But in another sense, if you have ever really been thirsty, you know what he's speaking about here. Not kind of thirsty. Not like, I think I'll stop and get a glass of water. I'm thinking about the time when you really run out. And you start to dry up. And you start to have need. And that need, the need to quench a thirst, becomes overpowering. It does. It, it becomes all-consuming. It is very personal and it is very urgent. And God's using that as a picture because here's a group of people who are in captivity. Why are they in captivity? Because they tried to live life on their own terms. They didn't listen to what God had to say about where real life was. And because of that, they were in doing that, they tried to, they tried to somehow suck life out of this, this earth. And it doesn't happen. And they keep taking it in, but the more they take it in, the more thirsty they become because it's all dry. It is all empty. It is all devoid of some, that, that something that makes life worthwhile. And they are dried up and they are hopeless. What is the point of going on? That's the condition they're at here. What is the point of going on? They have potential, but without the water, it means nothing like having a garden which is sitting in the middle of a desert. Until that water gets to it, it is empty. It is worthless. I remember being in Colorado, and I've spoken many times about this, but Colorado, they had to, got to get right next to one of those big wheel irrigating systems, real sprinklers that have the big circles on them. And I got right at the edge of it right where it finishes, right where the water stops. And there is wheat this tall right here. And five feet away, it is little scrubby desert plants, but there's hardly anything there. That has water. This doesn't have water. The only difference between this ground and that ground is the presence of water. Yet that becomes worthless. We call it desert. And he says that, what God says is, those that are thirsty, they're seeking water and they're not finding it. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do for them. I'm going to supply that water. I'm going to make floods come to them. 
I'm going to bring them in. Now this, in a sense, should have taken Israel all the way back to that experience they had when they first came out of Egypt and God spoke to them. He called them there and he says, you're going to be mine. You're going to be something special to me. And I'm going to use you to glorify me. And then every day in that wilderness as they were out there, what happened? A flood comes out. And and again, I don't tire of saying this. I don't know what your picture of that water out of the rock was. But you've got a million people. That water coming out of the rock was not a faucet. It had to be a river. It had to be a flood that came out to be able for all those people to get to that water and be able to get what they needed to survive in that desert. And yet God did it. He did it for them then. Now they've turned away from God. Now they're in in trouble. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Because I'm the Redeemer. Because I'm the Holy One. Because I am going to finish what I started back there. And I'm going to call you to this. Now I like that passage for a number of reasons, and again, I'm not, I don't use a lot of alliteration, but what were some words we do use here a lot? And it is interesting that the Lord speaks about all three of the word, big words we use here all the time, the alliterated ones, because he talks at the beginning about the fact, fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, I'm your God. You have security because of the presence of God. Security, he says. And then he says something, he says, I'm going to make you a sharp threshing instrument. I'm going to do something for you which will make your life significant. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but that to me means almost as much as the security. Because I can remember before I was converted, sitting there wondering, what will my life count for when it's finished? That was a question that was, again, I was not converted. I wasn't thinking of this on a Christian basis. I was just thinking, here I've got life and a potential, and I've got all sorts of opportunities ahead of me. When I get to the other end, am I going to be one of those people who says I wasted it? It didn't mean anything? I leave nothing behind? Again, I'm thinking of this from a perspective of an unsaved man. It was a tremendous thing to me when I began to realize that God had called me not only just to be saved and to experience and to be in a church, but to do something that counted for eternity. What about this one? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. Lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves can't take it away. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So do it. Get your heart out there. Isn't that tremendous? The potential there. And then the final one there, he says, I'm going to satisfy. That's very important. And I will say to you that, that that's, that's part of what God intends to do for every human being. He wants, to come to, uh, he wants you to come to a place where you actually know what is to be satisfied. And he is talking some, about something that's very personal there. This isn't group. This has to do with the deep need of the human heart, of the thing which makes life worthwhile which takes it from being an empty thing, which is what this world, I've been there, I know that, what this world leaves you with and brings you to a place where the inward man is no longer striving, is no longer so anxious, is no longer depressed, is no longer beaten down, is no longer confused. That's a call. What a tremendous promise God gave to them. And this is to a group of people that have messed up completely. But I'm going to come and do it. And I want you to know 
Now, I want to go back another time here. Yeah, or go back and think about how this ties together another way. It was said that those that wait on the Lord gain a new strength. And what that new strength is, well, here's another way to describe. Here is the new strength that enables a man to keep on walking. It is a strength which gives me security every day in an insecure world. That's the beginning of the new strength. What is it? It's the capacity to live day after day because the eternal God has vowed, promised to walk with me. That's tremendous. And that can keep you going in the tough moment that whatever I face here, fear not what, I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. Now, all this is repeated in the New Testament. This was spoken to the Old Testament saints, but the principles are exactly the same in the New Testament. We saw that last year with your book in the book of Hebrews. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. It won't ever, ever happen. So I got that security to walk there. But there's more than that. What keeps the person going? The fact that they know that their life has significance. That for a person who is committed to Jesus Christ, who has come to that place, this is, I'm thinking New Testament now, for that person who, who has come to that place, their life counts every day no matter where they are. And it will count to the very end of that life. And one of those great things in Psalm 92 where it says at the end, and and the, the man who follows God will bear fruit even in his old age. I've seen that, that in numerous occasions. Situations where, from this world's perspective, the person doesn't count anymore. But they're still bearing fruit because it's the promise of God that once you are, are part of this, your life counts all the way through. And then what else keeps you going? What else keeps you going is inwardly, in that place which is most personal down in the soul. God says he'll satisfy. In fact, that is one of the ways that Jesus called men to himself, right? It's all New Testament also. The Lord picking up this almost exact vocabulary of this says in, in John chapter 7, it says he stood up and he cried out to the human race. I think it's tremendous. Jesus, as Mr. Carroll used to remind us, almost always just talked. His sermons were not, he just sat down and spoke to people. Easy talking. Easy, easy to listen to. It says on this day, it says on that day, on the great day of the peace, he stood up in the middle of him. He cried out to the human race. He's calling to them. He said this, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. He who comes to me out of his innermost being will flow, will bubble up, will overflow rivers of living water. Now, that's the promise of God. That was the promise to Israel. All right? Now, having finished that promise, we've got to keep moving here. He then picks up it with the uh, rest of the world again. Because this is also an important point I want to, I have to make this one as we go through the chapter because it comes up, we talked about it last year, I want to talk about it again here. Because then he goes back to the nations. He says, present your case, right? I've I've told you what I'm doing. I'm controlling what's going on. And I'm going to perform something through this group of people. Now, present your case, what's going on. Bring forth your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. And let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. Now, we we lose a little bit here. Let me just tell you, what he now addresses is the gods that they serve. Those ones that they hammered together, 
They built these gods back in the, the earlier. Now he says, now, I want to talk. Let's, let's let them, let's let them give their case. Let's show that they're gods. So this is the way he puts it. It's a little bit demeaning here, but to those gods. But anyway, we'll read through here. Let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. You tell me. Now I've told you what I'm doing. Now you tell me what's going to happen next. Where's it going to go? If you're gods, tell us where it's going. Don't just tell us what to do. Tell us where it's going. Explain to us what history's all about. All right. As for the former events, declare what they were. If you can't get there, well, then explain what happened before. Tell us what, what that meant. And of course, they're not going to say anything because they're made out of stone. But anyway, he's still challenging them that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what's coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you're God's. Indeed, do good or evil. And the thought here is do good, do evil, do something. Don't just stand there. Don't just be there. Now, what he's doing, of course, again, the idol's not going to respond, is it? But it's amazing what people trust. It's amazing what people trust. They put their confidence in, besides going to God. It's basically they trust in themselves, but then they get their helps. They get money. They get education. They get all sorts of things, which are what? They're all slipping away. Your education will slip away. Your money will, I mean, okay. They're having fires right now in California. 200,000 people have been evacuated from their homes at the threat of those homes being consumed. And they are being consumed, apparently, on a regular... uh, They're losing quite a few of them. If that was where your significance was, and that's where your security is, and if that's where you have buried... You've put all your confidence so that I can be safe in life. and And some of those are big homes. Big mansions going down. Again, I, I feel for them, and I'm not trying to, but it's amazing what we'll trust. And, and what God has said, what he said in the last chapter is so, so important to us here. This is really important down to where we really live, right? All flesh is grass. Everything I build, everything I do, everything apart from that which has eternal value, because I'm working with God, it's going to perish. And it's an unreliable crutch. Right? That's what Jeremiah explains. You went to Egypt to get help. And Egypt became to you like a, it's like a crutch that you had. But the crutch was itself broken. And when you leaned on it, it split. And you fell and it pierced right through you. And that's the way he's describing the experience of people. Now, come and and answer, if you will. And I want to say that for again, for all those that are are still thinking, you know, is this true? Because you have to answer that question sooner or later. You either believe it's true or you don't. And if you don't believe it's true, of course, you wouldn't. I mean, why would anybody follow the Lord if you didn't think this was true? Right? Why would you why would you go that direction? So I feel for you there too because I I know what that's like. I know what it's like to ask the question is it accurate? And I, we're saying this and we're going over this point because what the Lord wants to say to us is this. 
Here's, I'm going to tell you how it's accurate. I'm going to tell you how you can know. That's why I like the book of Isaiah. It was written 150 years before these events take place. And later on, he's going to get down to some particulars. He's going to name Cyrus in this. That bothers some people. How could he do that? 150 years before, surely it must have been written afterwards. Well, it wasn't written after the cross, and he described that too. So he has a whole lot of other things that he predicts that are beyond that. But you see, what he's saying is that I have a plan, and I'm going to tell the human race what that plan is. It's in here. He tells you. You can trace the history of mankind here. And you go all the way back to the beginning, and you can see it working out. And while it's working out, you can read how God told you how it was going to, re- how it was going to work out. And the reason he's telling you that is because he is God, and he wants you to know that. He wants you to know this is reliable. You can count on this. All flesh is grass, but what? His word endures forever. And again, I know, I've been in enough college dorm discussions to know this. Oh, well, that's, that's just, there's other people that make predictions. Present them. If anybody ever comes to you with that, ask them to present it. Ask them to come up with any other book which claims to be God speaking, which tells you what's going on and has nothing even remotely compares to the Bible. Nothing remotely compares to what he's done why is he why is that important to us because god is shouting to the nations that i'm here he's not saying this just to rebuke the nations he's asking them to assess what you have put your weight down on what you are trusting in what you are looking to do to give to you security what you are looking to to give you a sense of importance or satisfaction in your life, some reason why you get up. What are you looking to to answer the void which is, which is within the human heart because of the emptiness, because the relationship with God is broken? What are you looking to? Why does he say that? This isn't a trial to put them on trial. This is an argument. Come, let us reason together. That's the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Let's let's think about these things. And what are we going to do about it? Now, that brings us to the, the final section. All right. He says that there's no one who can answer. And then in verse 27, 28, and 29, we have sort of what may look like a very anticlimactic finish to the chapter, but it's not. Because it brings us back to why he's saying all this. It says, after he spoke to all the nations about their condition, he comes back and says this, Formerly I said to Zion, this is before, way back, before you ever ended up in this mess, I spoke to you. He said, Behold, there they are... are here they are. And he's talking about prophets there. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. And he did. He sent them to him. Isaiah came to Jerusalem. So did Micah and Joel and a number of other prophets. Jeremiah spoke there. Habakkuk spoke there. And Zephaniah spoke there. All these men came to speak to that nation, to present to them the plan of God. 
And it was pretty clear what those prophets had to say. When you go back and you study them, they're saying about the same thing because God's message is the same, but they apply it in different ways. But they're going to explain all that God wanted them to know. But then he says this, I sent them there. But when I look, he's talking about the nation as a whole. When I look, there was no one. There's no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. In other words, there's nobody that picked it up. They didn't get it. The whole nation missed it. Because if you were to ask the people in that nation, this is what he's saying, where is this all going? What's happening? How should I live? They wouldn't be able to answer it, even though they had heard the message over and over and over again. And it says, Behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, and their molten images are wind and emptiness. Now that's it's kind of a funny finish there because he gets found their their molten images, because you see, they had done exactly the same thing as the nations out there had done. Because that's the that's the root of the human heart. That's the direction it always goes. Why would I make an image? Why would I make an idol? when I had the potential to walk with a living God? Well, I'll tell you why it is, so you'll understand your own heart. That block of wood will never make a demand on your life. It will never tell you you've done the wrong thing. It will never ask you to go another another direction. It will never interfere with your plans. When When your plans don't work, it can't help you either. But it will never interfere It will give you a sense of security, but it will not come through because it's a block of wood. But on the other hand, the block of wood won't bother you. The relationship between that block of wood and the person who serves it is a business relationship. I serve you, you serve me. I do this, I give you my little offerings, and it's done worldwide. I make an offering to you, and when I need you, you come back and you you work for me. We had friends in Nepal who served in Nepal. And one of them said he saw this. He saw, he saw this happen. A guy came out one morning, irritated, took his idol and smashed it in the middle of the, in the, middle of the little village he was in. He was really irritated. All right, because that idol was an idol which called it was a money god, and he had been dutifully serving the money god for years, and the money god had left him poor. And if the money god doesn't come through, what do we do with him? We break the relationship. So he smashed it. <laughs> I don't know. That might, I wonder if that makes you feel a little silly about your god that you can do that to it. But anyway, he did it. But it expresses the human heart because it's, it, they, we want a business relationship with God, right? I will serve God up to here. I will do this much if he will do this for me. If he doesn't do it for me, then I won't do it for him. But it's all business. The eternal God made you to have a personal relationship with him. He describes that relationship as far as coming together in this as marriage. There are different ways our relationship with God is described, but he describes this as marriage. 
And from a biblical perspective, that marriage involves commitment. It's not a business relationship. It is a total commitment of the two to each other. It is a permanent commitment of the two to each other. That's the way it's described biblically. And you see, once you enter into a marital relationship on the biblical terms, your private life is kind of over. Your right to live the way you want to live and all the things that might cross your mind is restricted because there is another person that you're involved with and developing a relationship, developing that relationship becomes critical. Why don't people want to serve the living God? Because they don't want God interfering in their lives. And so they go apart. And all the, the nations did this. This is what Israel did. Now, at the end here, he comes back and he makes this promise. Here's what I'm going to be to you. I am going to be security to you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I am going to make you a sharp threshing instrument. I'm going to use you. I'm going to enable you to do something which counts. And then finally he promises this. I will pour water on him that's thirsty. And that's all of us, right? I'm going to pour floods on the dry ground. But all of that is absolutely meaningless unless the people who hear it come and listen and do something about it. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about to whom was the book written, and we said there were four. Really, there's four different ways you can look at who it was written to. Isaiah said this a hundred years before the captivity, and when God says something, he's saying it for a purpose. So Isaiah, first of all, said this to a group of people before the captivity so that they would know what to do. And what should they have done as they heard that of the promise? It's way out there that God makes his promise. He's going to do this. But they should have responded. They should have waited on the Lord. They should have come to him and committed themselves in faith. See, all the way through this book of Isaiah, that's all God's asking is he's asking you to come and commit yourself to him in faith. He sees the reason why you don't do that as pride. It's just that simple. There's two kinds of people, the proud and those that live by faith. Those that will trust themselves and their flesh which is dying and those that will trust God. When you come to the people later on who we're speaking about, what should they do about this? See, here's the promise of what God's going to do, but unless they enter into that, unless in an act of faith they say, okay, I'm going to trust you for that. I am going to trust you to be my security. I am going to trust you to be the meaning for my life. I am going to trust you to quench the thirsting as the song, or that song goes, the, the thirsting of my soul. Unless they do that, they won't enter into it. Most of the people went into captivity and had the opportunity to get back on the plan of God stayed in captivity. The vast majority of them. Only about, finally, about 50,000 of them went back. We figure that they probably remained in that captivity. Almost a million people who decided that they didn't want to go back with the program of God. Then, of course, there was a third time. All these promises are given at the time of the Lord. Because everything he's talking about here for Israel is made available to us because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. That finally, he's the one that can offer the water. He's the one that can can give you security, the one who will never leave or forsake. He is the one that makes you part of his body a useful member and something doing things for eternity. And of course, the final point is for us. Tonight, all this means something to us. 
So again, we want to keep asking that because these are it's a powerful passage. What are you trusting in? Have you ever really come to the place where you've begun to wait on God? You've looked at what He said in His Word. You've understood that He proved through the through the ages that that Word's going to remain, and you've decided to sink your your faith, your confidence into what that Word says, and begin to build your life on it. That's the way Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. You begin. You hear what I say. It's not hearing that makes a difference. It's then, okay, I'm going to build on what I hear. Are you building on that? Have you come and committed to it? You know what it is to be able to walk because you have that security, because you have that confidence that my life counts, and because you have the inner man satisfied so you don't need the things on this earth to satisfy it, to keep you going. Tremendous passage. And you're going to move right on into who it is that made this possible. But tonight it's available to us because of what the Lord did. We've all wrecked lives just like they wrecked their lives. The Lord Jesus Christ makes it possible because of what he did when he offered himself on a cross. He is our Redeemer, the Holy One. And he makes it possible for every person, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what kind of a mess your life is in, to come back and start and receive that that salvation and know what it is to have real life, to know what it is to mount up with wings like eagle, to run, not be weary, and then this walk through the rest of your life and not be pushed around by the pressures on it. What have you done? Have you come to that place? So let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to use word again. Thank you for every person in this room who has come to that place. We thank you for coming and speaking to us in your kindness. We thank you for that day when we heard the words of life and we knew the enabling of the Spirit to embrace them. We're asking you to do that again tonight for every person in this room, that no one will leave outside the kingdom of God. Father, do the mighty thing for your praise and glory. And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.